I want, I want, I want me, 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 mine, 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 now, now, now. You know you're responsible for what you hear. You know you're responsible for what you hear. Greetings and welcome to Thoughts from Meharry Head, the weekly podcast where I talk about, well, whatever happens to be bouncing around inside my head at the moment, but mostly focusing on constitutional issues and political decentralization. This is episode 13 of Thoughts from Meharry Head, and I appreciate you tuning in. This week, I'm going to talk about nullification and slavery. very far into a discussion about nullification before somebody will accuse you of being a neo-confederate. I have to admit, I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. But it's clearly meant to imply that anybody who supports the idea of nullification must be some kind of racist. Now, let me back up just a second for those of you who might be new to this whole concept and are wondering what in the heck nullification is. It's really pretty simple. It's any action taken by a state government that serves to render an unconstitutional federal law null, void, or simply unenforceable within a state. Now, most people don't know anything about the history of nullification. It's part of America's past that's fallen down the proverbial Orwellian memory hole. The average American mixes up nullification and secession and thinks southern states used it to protect slavery. But the exact opposite is true. Southern states never used nullification to defend slavery. In fact, it was northern states that appealed to the principles and utilized nullification tactics to block enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Acts. Now, I bet at least some of you are thinking, wait, what is this guy talking about? I never learned about this in school. And you're right. The history was all but erased after the Civil War. Northern resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act was based primarily on the premise of state sovereignty. That's certainly not part of Lincoln's legacy. So, it's basically been written out of the history books. I intend to pull it out of that Orwellian memory hole. Now, in my never-to-be-humble opinion, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was one of the most disgusting things ever passed by Congress. This so-called law denied a black person that was accused of being an escaped slave any semblance of due process. A white man could go up north and basically drag a black person back south into bondage on the power of his word. Listen to how this law was written. In no trial or hearing under this act shall the testimony of such alleged fugitive be admitted into evidence. Did you catch that? A person accused of being an escaped slave was not even allowed to testify or offer evidence in his own defense. This violates all kinds of constitutional provisions. 
Now, every once in a while, I'll hear somebody try to defend the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 by saying it was a protection of Southern property rights. I find this an abhorrent argument. You're basically saying that human beings can indeed be property. And if you actually believe that, please crawl back under whatever rock you came out from. Most Northerners held this position. They didn't believe that human beings were property, and they believed that they at least had the right to defend themselves. So a lot of northern states simply refused to comply with the Fugitive Slave Act, and they took steps to block its implementation through what were known as personal liberty laws. For example, the Michigan legislature passed its personal liberty law in 1855. The Michigan Personal Freedom Act guaranteed any man or woman claimed as a fugitive slave to, quote, all the benefits of the writ of habeas corpus and of trial by jury, unquote. Now, keep something important in mind. This was in direct opposition of an 1842 Supreme Court ruling. The Michigan legislature basically threw up its middle finger to the Supreme Court. The Michigan Personal Liberty Law also prohibited the use of state or local jails for holding an accused fugitive slave, and it made it a crime punishable by a fine of $500 to $1,000. Finally, it made any attempt to send a freeman south into slavery a crime. Here's how that part of the law was written. Every person who shall wrongfully and maliciously seize or procure to be seized any free person entitled to freedom with the intent to have such person held in slavery shall pay a fine of not less than 500 nor more than $1,000 and be imprisoned five years in the state prison. Note that these penalties apply to any person. This included federal marshals and slave commissioners. Michigan was not alone in passing personal liberty laws, far from it. A Massachusetts act called for the removal of any state official who aided in the return of a runaway slave and disbarment of an attorney assisting in fugitive slave rendition. Another section authorized impeachment of state judges who accepted federal commissioner positions authorizing them to prosecute fugitive slaves. The law declared that, quote, they shall be deemed to have violated good behavior, to have given reason for the loss of public confidence, and furnished sufficient ground either for impeachment or for removal by address, end quote. The Act to Protect the Rights and Liberties of the People of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts also provided criminal penalties for any person who removed a fugitive slave from the state without proving his or her servitude in a state court under a criteria set up by the Act. No easy task. And like the Michigan Act, the Massachusetts law did not exempt federal agents. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. This was all contrary to Supreme Court opinion. So how effective was this act? Well, after passage, there is no record of a fugitive slave ever being returned from Massachusetts once its personal liberty law was passed. The Ohio legislature took a slightly different track. In 1857, it passed an act to prevent kidnapping, quote, forcibly or fraudulently carrying off, unquote, a free black person or mulatto would get you three to eight years of hard labor. Anybody trying to take an escaped slave out of Ohio was subject to the same charges if they failed to go to the proper court and prove ownership. Almost every northern state passed some version of these personal liberty laws. Together, they drastically reduced the number of fugitive slaves returned south. In other words, they worked, effectively nullifying the Fugitive Slave Act in practice. 
In fact, it was so effective that South Carolina listed northern nullification of fugitive slave laws as its first complaint when it explained its reasons for secession in an official declaration of causes. And it used the word nullification. So it's abundantly clear that nullification was not something cooked up by Southerners who wanted to maintain slavery. But what about the appeals to nullification by segregationists in the 1950s and 1960s? Well, that's at least a valid point from a historical perspective. Southerners did appeal to states' rights generally and nullification specifically to support segregation. In 1956, 99 members of Congress signed on to what was known as the Southern Manifesto to counter the Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board of Education. The document decried school integration and insisted states retain the power to determine the makeup of their schools, regardless of the Supreme Court decision. The manifesto commended, quote, the motives of those states which have declared the intention to resist forced integration by any lawful means, unquote. In Arkansas, they put these words into action, deploying National Guard troops to block nine black students from entering Little Rock Central High School in 1957. Certainly not nullification's finest hour. But does this admittedly despicable use of nullification make it an invalid and illegitimate political tactic? Of course not. But opponents of nullification, generally supporters of overreaching monopoly government, use the racism and neo-Confederate charges as a way to discredit the tactic. They hope to push nullification supporters into a corner by forcing them to champion morally repugnant segregation along with nullification. But these people create a false choice. I can easily embrace the principle of nullification while condemning their application by those seeking to preserve Jim Crow. Think about it. I don't condone every use of a tool when I claim it has a functional value. If some guy murders somebody with a hammer, bludgeons them to death, that doesn't negate the utility of the hammer for driving nails. In the same way, I can emphatically reject segregation and racism while championing nullification as a legitimate process. Throughout history, Americans have applied the principles of nullification to protect free speech, to preserve due process, to advance economic justice, and to fight military conscription. Yet opponents continue to point to a singular period in history when it was used for a morally repugnant end as a reason to reject it in its entirety. Here's the truth. Nullification is historically, philosophically, and morally the rightful remedy when the federal government exercises undelegated powers. So I soundly reject the doctrine of segregation while boldly championing principles abolitionists unapologetically use to advance their cause. Well, that's it for this episode of Thoughts from Meharry Head. I really appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and spread the word. And don't forget to head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Also, feel free to send me any thoughts or ideas at michael.meharry at 10thamendmentcenter.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.